0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member Oh, uh,
1: Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Woo, woo. Thursday, July 16th, 2020. As always, as most of the time, I'm Jeff. I'm always Jeff O'Neill. <laughs> most of well, the time, it's Jeff and Rebecca. Who can be sure? Yeah. Uh, coming to you from bookriot.com. We're in the dog, I mean, it's getting towards the dog days of summer all of a sudden. What do you call, Is it ju- after July 4th before Labor Day, is that the dog days of summer ah. or is it exclusively August? Oh, that's a good say? question.
2: I feel like the dog days are a, I know it when I feel it. Uh, yeah. And in Richmond, it's when the temperature is consistently in the 90s or mm-hmm. above, which right. hit that, that hit this week. Um, so
1: you're in the dog days.
2: We're in the dog days. The yeah. predicted high for Saturday is 100. No. Which no, is not you. acceptable. That's yeah, not it's good. the dog days here. It's gross.
1: Okay. Um I've got a lot of stuff to I mean, kind of a follow upish ish kind of a day today yeah. too. Though I I'm gonna spring on you. I watched uh, Greyhound over the weekend, so we're gonna do five minutes of Greyhound talk. Did oh Bob good. I wondered if
2: you were gonna like I did not watch it yet. I wondered if you were gonna just like get fully in your dad vibe and mm. watch Greyhound. Wait,
1: did Bob watch it? He likes movies about ships. Is he gonna watch he, Greyhound?
0: He's going to. Okay. He hasn't yet.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh but first let's do let's do a quick sponsor.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books and so i'm really looking forward to this one it's set in the spanish golden age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth it follows lucia a servant in the household of an impoverished spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles her social climbing mistress demands lucia use her gifts to win over madrid's most powerful players but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn lucia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillen Sant'Angel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must-read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leighbardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo, for sponsoring this episode. (laughs)
1: So, Greyhound um, premiered on Apple Plus on the 10th. So, last weekend, um, Michelle and I watched it. Um, it's not a good movie, though oh. I enjoyed watching it. So, okay. let's talk about that for just a second. Just because we talked about it, it's Hanks, it's an adaptation, and it's our show. You know, get your own podcast if you don't like that. Hanks talk. I don't know what to tell you. So, it's based on a C.S. Forster novel called The Good Shepherd, which i will read now because i think there's a way better movie in here than mm-hmm. this because it's like so tom hanks is the captain of the great uss greyhound which i'm not even sure what what it's a destroyer or a frigate i don't even my nomenclature of this is pretty weak but basically it, the greyhound's job is to escort ships across the atlantic during world war ii and fight u-boats that are trying to sink the troop ships and supplies going over to to, to jolly olds right so that that's the setup that's all it is right that's the stick Which is cool, but that's really all the movie is. There's really no character Mm. development. We get like a two minute scene at the beginning of him and Elizabeth Shue exchanging gifts. Uh, I don't know why. I guess so (laughs) that, you know, he has a person to make sure he's heterosexual. I don't, I don't, very strange moment. Um, Probably the the (laughs) least Elizabeth Shue ever going to see in a movie, and I really like her. And he goes off to war, and it's just, then it's just hunting U boats for 90 minutes. Um, it's the best movie I've ever seen about reading numbers off, you know, bearing 918, all ahead third, come round to 646. <laughs> it's that for oh, 90 no. minutes. So it is wild stuff. If your favorite part of Hunt for Red October, October was Ramius talking to the pilot of the submarine saying, all about four, two, eight, nine. <laughs> like, that's what it is oh, for, no. for 70 minutes. And you really got to like ships to be into that. Like, the special effects are cool. Like... You see these boats and there's guns and they're shooting things at other things, but keeping track of where you are and what the U-boats are doing and why we're, it is a tough spot. And the only reason it's watchable at all is because Tom Hanks being competent is reassuring. That's what the movie is. It's Tom Hanks. I'd watch Tom Hanks mowing the lawn, talk about mowing Mm -hmm. his own lawns. It's just reassuring to see Tom Hanks know what the hell he's doing. That's what the show is. Um, I don't. There's something about it too that makes me think there was a much longer version of this where you got more character development and a little bit more understanding of different things. But it really is wildly like pretty straight. It's not, again, like I said, it's only 90 minutes long, and the whole it ends with them still in the boat. You get like three minutes of them in the boat uh, before that, and, and that's it. So I'm I'm shocked <laughs> about what the movie actually is because I just and apparently it's really popular. Everyone's looking to Hanks. To do this right now, but it is an awful lot of oh, this is what it means to actually captain a boat with actually not caring about telling people what the hell is going on. It's wild stuff. Like I couldn't believe just, it. Let's show the boring parts. Yeah, I mean it's exciting. They, it's exciting, but they don't they don't strip away a lot of the and, and maybe you know one reason I'm curious about Bob's reaction because he really mm-hmm. likes a book about tall ships, right? That, he, that's he's. <laughs> Yes, Those yes. books are very technical, I think. Is it too technical for Bob is my uh. that's the thing I came out of it wondering <laughs> because as you know, I my threshold for boring is extremely low. And mm-hmm. we were troubling the depths, Rebecca Shinsky. <laughs> that is what I'm saying here. That's,
2: I mean, that's a sad story. It's not
1: great. It's not what you want. Um, I think there's on the a other distin- hand, a lot of people are watching it, so I don't know. I don't. I,
2: well, everybody's watching it in hopes it'll be great. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um,
2: I think there's a distinction between reading something highly technical and watching something highly technical. Right. I I think that feels very different, um, and you can sort of like you can skim through the highly technical stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's like all the pages about fishing that people skip in Moby Dick.
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> but what if Moby Dick was just the whaling part? Just the, just the right. super, super technical whaling stuff.
2: You know? Yeah. And like Bob is currently listening to like the 15th book in the Master and Commander series on audio. Yeah. He's read them all in print. So he he does love a tall ship story, but I bet that this would be too boring on screen.
1: I mean, there's a lot him. of action. So I'm not sure. Boring isn't quite the right word. The the avalanche of technicality, um, it's trying so hard. I don't think it succeeds as being truly boring because there is enough, like, shoot that thing, depth charges, (laughs) oh, no, torpedoes. Like, there's inherent drama Mm. in that. But, boy, they squandered the drama uh, by making it so, so technical. it's one of those chestnuts in movies where you have some sort of scene or a character where someone gets to exposition all over someone else because mm-hmm. you've got to explain, like, how some neophyte that's a that's a stand-in for the audience, you got to tell them, like, what the hell is going on there. Here, no one, there's no function of that. Everyone that's in the movie is already an expert. So there's no chance to sort of break out of it to explain to us mere mortals, like, how why are there only that many depth charges? What is a standard sweep of the starboard... A sonar array, oh, really mean? I'm like falling asleep. Just it's saying. just wild. And I think they were smart to keep it to 90 minutes. Um, <gasps> and I don't know. It, apparently, it was long in trouble in production. And I thought mm-hmm. it was mostly because it's technical, because it seems were... to me mostly CGI of ships. Like, okay. it seems crazy hard to have made. They were probably but I think, trying to figure
2: like, out, like, can we yes. make this more interesting?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think they ultimately decided, let's just keep it to the 90 minutes that the actual boats going across... And seeing who's going to die and who's not going to die. Like, just keep it to that stuff. And thankfully, that's compelling enough that you weren't falling asleep. And Michelle and I after were like, that was a very bad, good movie. Right? <laughs> it's a bad, good movie. Because there's a good movie version of that in there somewhere. And I just don't know what uh-huh. it is. Br- brought home to me again, what a wonder the screenplay for Hunt for Red October is. Because it's it's submarines that you can't see floating around. Talking about where other submarines are that you can't see, and yet you understand what's going on and you're not bored by it because there's like a human drama that's beyond like, will they get blown up or not? Which is kind of all the stakes that are here. Um, so, anyway, I, fascinating document uh, in the streaming <laughs> wars and the adaptation wars. You know, Hanks wrote the screenplay. Um, so oh, I know Tom you know, Hanks, buddy. Yeah. So, and Hanks can write a screenplay. I, yeah. That thing you do, I love. It's one of my, you know, my favorite, favorite shows to rewatch.
2: Yeah, and he didn't even get to tap into his like Robert Langdon just explainery parts. No, he's sense. just it's telling like people
1: just, where to put the ship. Put the ship like, over um, here and do this, do that. It's like, okay, cool. I, I guess this
2: is. What I think it doing was right in now. Lauren Graham's memoir a couple of years back, and I know that you like her and liked Gilmore Girls, but I'm yeah. not sure if you read the memoir. I think um, I her, did, or one of re- her things. Yeah. yeah, something... Yeah, and I, I remember her talking about like studying her scripts to do a medical show, oh, and yeah. before she learned the vocabulary, it would just be like, doctor, hand me the medical medical, because I have to do the medical <laughs> yes. medical for the patient who's suffering from the medical 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 medical. And it sounds like this is just that version, but of like, you know, submarine word, submarine yeah. word. D-
1: that's explosion. exactly it. There's a scene in Notting Hill where Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts are reading lines for her action, mm-hmm. whatever, and she's like, well, you need Dark Star cover to get the Bs to the Xs or whatever, and they're making <laughs> fun of how just how technical <laughs> it is. And usually that's an excuse. You have to do that stuff to get to the human drama. Right. And, there, and this is like, what if it was all that? What if it was all just the medical medical of um, ships at sea? Because my dad was in the Navy. I've read some books about ships. I know from ships, Rebecca Shinsky. like you know as a, And I was like, What are the, what, (laughs) how do these things work? What can a U-boat do? Why are, (laughs) what is going on here? The sonar's broken, but then it's not. And I don't, we're this far away, bearing nine, eight. We're within minimum sort of, where where are we?
2: The real test then is the dad test. Does your dad like Greyhound?
1: That's a great question. I need to see if he's, he's, he's going to watch it. My guess is he knows a little too much Mm. to, to be bored by it. i i would guess right he spent his time on ships like he's not a cat he was you know a, a surgeon you know he's a medical person but he spends time on ships i bet he would be fascinated to hear about all the stuff you know to see how it was really going on um you know we did get to see you know tom hanks gets blisters from his boots at one point and gets slippers he puts slippers on and that's like the most interesting that happened <laughs> that, that that's like well that's the most it's just a break from the Come around to two eight seven and all ahead poles. Right. It's and just a human ma- moment. Yeah, it just cut and it was like, geez, uh, his first command, oh. and he's Tom Hanks's age. So you're like, what's? How did this guy? It's his first command, and that's interesting. So he's an older that's guy. Interesting, that, huh? But no, not 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 commented on at all. <laughs>
2: I'm. I saw advertisements for Greyhound, it must have been in the last week or so, as it was coming out, and it reminded me that we should just revisit like, the whole oh, list yeah, of movies right. that we talked about that were coming out for spring and summer, to because since exist, theaters yeah. continue to like not be a thing.
1: All right, enough of that nonsense. Um, let's get on to actual other nonsense, new nonsense, news nonsense from the rest of the week uh, after this.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Tor Books. So if you are a fan of epic fantasy, if you're a fan of Scott Lynch and or Joe Abercrombie, but you want something a little different, you want a hero who's like a bit of a mess, then the Silver Blood Promise by James Logan is for you. In its Academy dropout slash disgraced noble heir, Lacan Gordova's life is in shambles. All he's got going for him is one, he is a card sharp of considerable skill and two, a lot of Maybe potentially a little too much wine. So those are you know, those are the positives. So when the bizarre murder of his father robs him of even the off chance of redemption, Lacan decides to make amends another way. He's going to unravel the mystery behind the killing, even if it takes him to the underbelly of Sophrona, a city of danger, secrets, and merchant princes. Finding the truth is one thing. Finding the truth and staying alive is like a whole other thing. So make sure to check out The Silver Blood Promise by James Logan on sale May 7th. And thanks again to Tor Books for sponsoring this episode today's episode is brought to you by song of the silks realms by judy island Shuei is a talented young musician who is orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is of course devastated. With no family and no patron, Shuei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shuei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shui barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke and who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy I. Lynn for sponsoring this episode. Sponsor.
1: Okay, a uh, follow-up. Um, we can hit this one maybe quickly. National, the NBCC, National Book Critics Circle, is rebuilding its board basically getting some new bodies in there, getting some new members, putting in some structures to vote out. It looks explicitly <laughs> set up to vote <laughs> out this one cancerous member, and then also to have a sustainable, ethical, and responsive ongoing structure. Um, so this is good. I think we uh, at first we had real doubts that was this going to be an uh, RWA death spiral? Uh, was this going to be salvageable? We didn't know. I, I think the needle is moving from death spiral to salvageable with this, Rebecca. Is that your reading? Yeah,
2: I have more confidence in this now than I did a week ago, which is not the way these stories often go, but yeah, they've um, appointed 15 members to the board to replace the folks who had exited. Some of those are people that had previously been on the board who have rejoined. Some are new folks, good, interesting, and diverse list of people. Um, So they are showing that value there. And they've also proposed changes to the bylaws that give additional voting powers to members um, and that explicitly declare the NBCC to be an anti-racist, anti-bias organization. Um, And they will be then holding a special call for the purpose of voting out Carlin Romano. Mm -hmm. Um, So good luck to them. This looks like this looks like progress. It looks hopeful. And it's not easy to, no. like, I, can you imagine just the number of emails and phone calls that it took to get to this point yeah. of getting these 15 people on board and getting sort of everybody back pointed in the same direction, trying to make progress. And that's an incredible amount of heavy lifting to the folks who have stayed at the NBCC and are trying to, to get this going. So, yeah, it looks like it, it might be salvageable.
1: I guess one major difference, too, to look at the, the worst case scenarios for the lifespan of groups like this. Um, actually, the, wor- the worst case scenario is not always that these things dissolve. Right, the worst thing is they right. continue and be racist organizations, of course. But for the Romance Writers of America or the Romance Writers Association, I don't know what the A. It could be either one. Um, the one that was a there was emerging stories that came out when that really hit the fan in a real way about long term problems in the organization that manifests itself in a a lot of different ways i didn't see equivalent stories about the nbcc it was kind of this Mm -hmm. person this moment and as they were trying to figure out how to respond um to the contemporary uh protests and movement um around black lives and the black experience and black rights and equality that one person and of course it's it's not quite that simple but if you could remove this person, the larger board, the larger membership seemed to have their head screwed on straight. So whereas the Romance Writers Association, there was such a lack of trust that it eroded over time that the, the house wasn't worth saving. It was better to, to mow, you know, it's like the bulldoze than to rebuild or refurbish, mm-hmm. Where the NBC, the bones were okay, or, or you know, <laughs> uh, sufficiently okay, where those involved, that the house could be salvaged um, rather than needing the bulldozer, so to speak.
2: Yeah, and I think it's meaningful that there are different kinds of houses, yeah, that the RWA right. really functions both as a way to recognize and award romance writers, but also really as a community yes, um, and right. professional networking. And I think the NBCC probably intends to do, to serve some of those functions and probably does serve some networking functions. But RWA was also. Uh, such a a source of like gathering and support and community or was intended to be for not just romance writers but for romance readers to come together and they had those annual conventions that it later came out people had all kinds of you know horribly Mm -hmm. um, racist and sexist experiences um, at and that i think the there were more branches on that tree that could be Poisoned yeah. or toxic, um, than on the NBCCs, but it does look like um, NBCC here has a, a different kind of problem and may be able to rebuild and continue to serve the literary community in the way that um, that the way that it's intended to and the way that these folks who are staying want to. Um, and I commend them for doing all of this work. Like it's annoying when you have bylaws and you have to just do all this work to get rid of one person who if they were you know operating from a place of like you know more perspective or humility might just remove themselves cuz yeah. like clearly the writing's on the wall and um, this is a lot of work to do and I'm glad to see them undertaking that to make it happen
1: related i guess other news in the world of major literary awards um lisa lucas who has for the last few years been uh, in charge of the National Book Foundation, which is best known for administering and awarding the National Book Awards, uh, is leaving that position to take on the role as the honcho for one of the divisions of Penguin Random House. Um, this, this one is in charge of Pantheon and Schocken Books. Um, notable for a lot of reasons, and I don't want to bury the lead here, It's, it's sometimes in the heart audio, which is uh, that the, that Lisa Lucas is a black woman um, and a young Gish, black woman Mm -hmm. for uh, this kind of position at Random House. Um, She came to the National Book Foundation from, I believe, working um, in development for electric literature, Uh, development meaning, you know, fundraising and, you know, making sure all the bills could get paid and now into the future there. Um, And for the last several years has been the National Book Awards. I think we've talked about this over time, the National Book Awards trying to Oscarify itself for the last Mm -hmm. few years. And I think... Um, Lucas has been, that's been one of her projects. I think it's kind of been more or less successful. Like I think certainly if you watch a live stream of it, it looks like more of a glitzier kind of a deal, but how many people are watching the glitzier kind of a deal from a live stream, whether or not it matters, I'm not sure. I think the thing that you really can see and maybe has the most long-term effect is what kind of awardees are winning the national book awards. I think in addition to, Um, raising the profile of the National Book Awards, Lucas has really tried to make sure that the awards, the finalists, the judges are inclusive. And and it really does show up in the winners over the last uh, three to five years. Um, Interesting move for her. I think it makes a lot of sense for for Penguin Random House, right? As we've Mm -hmm. been talking about, um, companies of all stripes and sizes, um, at least those that have their eyes open, are looking with different kinds of eyes, I think, at their inclusion of black people in their ranks and where they fall in the org chart. Um, and so Random House finding a rising star of the book world, frankly, and um, bringing her into the Random House fold. Not the highest profile uh, Random House gigs, but these are, I mean, Pantheon is, a, this is imprint people have heard. Of, you've heard of books that have come out from mm-hmm. Pantheon, for sure. Um, also, I don't think this would be, I would guess both Lucas and Random House would imagine this as a a rung on the ladder. I don't know how I don't know where how high that ladder is or which rung on that ladder necessarily is. But if she does well here for a couple years, I don't think she's going to be a pantheon for the next thirty years. It would be my guess if, she, if if things work out.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about what the lines of succession mm-hmm. might be like there. Reagan Arthur took over um, at. Knopf after Sunny Meta passed at the end of, right at the end of 2019, I believe. Um, and Reagan Arthur is, I think, a few decades ahead of mm-hmm. um, Lisa Lucas in her career. So there are like imprint jumps that Lisa Lucas could make to imprints with greater prestige than Pantheon, and Pantheon is not lacking prestige itself, um, or higher up in the org chart of PRH moves that would be possible. And and yeah, I think it's, I mean, this is really exciting to see publishers doing this in all of the different ways that we've seen just in the last month or so of um, recognizing that one of the ways that they can make change happen throughout their organization is putting black people in some of the very highest positions that they have. And it will be interesting to see how that trickles down like as you were saying Lisa Lucas has been really effective at bringing more inclusivity to the National Book Foundation and it's really notable there especially because the executive director is like you sort of on the operational side yes. of things and she's not involved in or wasn't involved in like picking the books for the awards but she was in charge of choosing the panelists mm-hmm. and um, one thing that we know is you know if you have a more diverse group of people they're going to come up with a more diverse most likely list of a long list and a more Diverse shortlist, and that's certainly been effective. She's a great networker and yeah. seems really well liked. And um, throughout publishing, like I couldn't tell you the name of the previous executive no, director no. of the National great Book that's Foundation. That's a wonderful <laughs>
1: point. Well, that's what I say. Kind of a rising star. She's well liked <laughs> in the publishing industry. We've met her yeah. ourselves, and we don't know any. Well, I don't know anybody. Right? And- yeah.
2: Like yeah. And it'll be interesting to see who the National Book Foundation brings yeah. in after her. I can't think of anybody um that I know of, which is a limited mm-hmm. uh, that like that's a limited sample. So I'm sure there is somebody available, but who's working in like literary nonprofits that has risen to the place where it would be like, oh yes, obviously that's the person that the NBF is going to go after. Um, But she's done just incredible work, and I think it'll be interesting to see like what kinds of people she hires, what kinds of books, and is she giving the green light for how is she going to divvy up the budget Mm. that she gets um, heading up Pantheon, and will we see that result in a more diverse editorial staff and more diverse books being published by Pantheon, and the, just the culture of PRH changing overall, really, really interesting to see.
1: Maybe, maybe I'll try to get her on the podcast for an interview in six months or so when she's been on the job for a while. Cause I'd love oh, to hear, her ta- I'd love to hear her talk about her, her motivation, right? i now uh, there's a, there's the motivation that n- needs no name, which would be working <laughs> as executive director for a nonprofit versus being an SVP at random house is a different, I would guess a different money situation. So grab that bag. I'm never, I'm never going to question anyone's motive in their career when they, when that's mm-hmm. a possibility. But is she also thinking in terms of awarding books after they've already been bought, edited, publicized, marketed, and published versus getting closer to the metal of what kinds of books are coming through the pipeline to get awarded? How much of that kind of thinking influences? Did she think she could be, quote, unquote, more influential, whatever that means, and mm-hmm. how, how mm-hmm. that would be means by being in the machine? so to speak. Um, And, you know, what's the difference, right? I mean, they're both influential. They both matter. They both matter. Um, But someone who has experience doing one and seeing and making a move suggests that there's something else about this gig that she likes. Now, and maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a uh, prestige, maybe it's power, yeah, maybe it's, it's cash, but maybe it's also sort of efficacy, right? Or of some kind yeah, of I influence could, in a very, I think it could be all of those. Yeah, right. yeah.
2: I think it could really be all of those things. It certainly has the opportunity to be all of those things or the potential to be all of those things. And, you know, it, I think one trick that she's pulled off very well is being the executive director of a nonprofit of any size is not glamorous work. No. Um, but Lisa Lucas has kind of pulled off making it seem that way. Yeah. Um, and the National Book Awards do look beautiful. They seem fancy, I think, to the like the lay reader. If you ask, like, what's a fancier job being the head of this imprint at Pantheon or heading up the National Book Foundation, like most average readers on the street would probably say the National Book Foundation. But I think inside the world of publishing, going to head up your own imprint um, and yeah. run like, you know, run a business within a business at a publisher is more prestigious. This is a career step up, um, I think, undeniably in the hierarchy of publishing related jobs. And, yeah. it, um, and it's cool to see that happen.
1: Even if it's not a step up, it, the National the Executive Director of the National Book Awards might be the highest peak in the mountain range of, you know, literary awards in America. Whereas if Pantheon and Shocken might be a lower peak, but the range is higher. There's higher peaks in yeah, that yes, range, is what yeah. one way to think about it too. Though I'm because like you're not going to go run the Nobel because of a, a bunch of different reasons. <laughs> who right? would want to take? Yeah, that right. But right it's also the Swedish Academy <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. The Pulitzer Committee. I guess you could run the Pulitzer Prize if you want to. Dana Kennedy, who just went over to Simon Susscher, came from mm-hmm. that. That's that's actually you're not you're mostly not in publishing there. That's mostly a journalistic award, as we've talked right. about over time. That happens to have a few. Um, arts and Letters one, so that I guess that would maybe be more prestigious. I don't think like after that it's going to be. I guess you could run the MacArthur Foundation, which is also just sort of it has books as in and writers get. But but you're saying we we did that exercise of like which of the awards would you put in your bio like for books for, for if you're someone who cares about books the National Book Award is probably it you know it's, the, the, it's yeah so. There you go. So if you if you I, want to send higher, you got to get on a different mountain range.
2: Yeah. And I think if she had wanted to go higher or if a person wanted to go higher and stay in the world of like nonprofits and arts and fundraising yeah. from the National Book Foundation, they would need to leave yes. literature and move into like another area of the arts. or Ford Foundation,
1: of, you know, Harvard mm-hmm. University, and you know, like that kind right. of stuff. And right. some people really like that. Some people aren't, but it's a different kind uh, of a gig. Mm-hmm. So she's getting closer to books rather than farther away, I guess, is another way. Yeah. That, yeah, I think too. that's a good
2: way of summarizing it.
1: All right. Um, going from happy news to, to unpleasant kind of news, things we kind of have to talk about. And I think <sighs> the, the difficulty of it is part of the interest in this one and the larger discussion about, I guess, is this a Me Too story, I think, is one interesting way of thinking about it. And the answer is kind of yes and kind of no at the same time, or at least that's one way of thinking about it. Um, dozens of women have come forth. 60, um, at least. Yeah, which I guess is technically dozens, mm. but I think it's a 50 plus, right? At what point is, <laughs> is saying dozens actually <laughs> undercount it, right? So many. So many um, have come forth with stories about Warren Ellis, who is a mocker in the world of you know, science fiction, fantasy, um, about his behavior, about his relationships with women that range from... You know, I didn't know he was dating someone else to he was pretty explicitly trading influence for you know, physical relationships. Um, and I'm not sure what else to say about it from that. So that that's one piece of the other piece is that some of the women and I don't think they're speaking necessarily all with one voice, but a, a cohort of the women is saying we're, we're not looking to, quote unquote, cancel Warren Ellis, but we're looking to have a conversation about how to prevent this in the future. So I think the motivation is a little bit interesting because that is a chain. That, that's a, that's a, I think that's a phrase we haven't really heard around a figure of this side in the world of books and reading quite so, so mm-hmm. much that explicitly with, with the same breath of saying, here's what's happened to me. Also, here's what I would like not to happen with Warren Ellis.
2: Yeah. I, I kind of also think there's room that both of these things could happen, like this being in the news right. to the degree that it has been, at least in the literary world, is probably going to result in the functional cancellation of Warren Ellis mm-hmm. from from many people's bookshelves or from bookstores or from being welcome at gatherings and cons and all of that, but that their primary goal isn't just to out him, but to talk about the culture specifically within like the Comic-Con world and the worlds of sci-fi and fantasy, which are small communities that are close-knit. And this dynamic that... Happens that Warren Ellis is not the only example of where an older man, an older white man usually, um, who has prestige and recognition and success, forms relationships with younger women who are trying to break into the industry. And um, he uses those relationships f- for sexual gain and these young women think that they are being mentored or they think they're just dating someone who's very famous or maybe all of the above um, and the range here is like this dynamic is problematic on its own mm-hmm. and a lot of people have been hurt by it and with Warren Ellis and in other communities like and not just in books like we've seen this you know probably every industry that has Networking communities, so every industry has examples where this happens. Um, But the degree and extent of what was going on, I think, is really what draws this out. That, like, it's not that he had one or two relationships over time where he was abusing his power in this way. And, like, don't get me wrong, those would be a problem, also. Yes. One of any of this is bad. Um, But that at one time, he allegedly was conducting relationships with 19 different people who did not – like now they've all found each other. Some of these women started a website called So Many of Us that's linked in the Guardian piece that you'll see in the show notes if you want to go farther down this rabbit hole. Um, but these women have found each other and put have started putting the pieces together yeah. and – At the time, they each thought that they were consenting to a relationship with him and that maybe his uh, person that he had as his partner at the time was either down for an open relationship or they were told that that relationship was on the off again side of Mm. on again, off again. So they thought that they were consenting to it like a one on one relationship with him. And in in fact, he was at at one point event having a different woman in his room, like three different women in the course of three days, and none of them knew about each other. So they weren't given all the information that they needed to be able to actually consent to what was really going on. Um, And just like the level of planning and detail and tracking, like I I was talking to a friend offline about this, like you would literally have had to have spreadsheets. (laughs) to keep track of 19 relationships at the same time um that and that he hit it very well you know like one of the things that i've seen uh, come out of this is that kelly sue DeConnick, who's an incredible uh, comics writer did a, an instagram live video that we'll put in the show notes as well where she talked about the fact that she and warren ellis have been friends for 20 years he's been very good to her um She never had any inkling that this was going on. He never told her and he hid it. And the fact that he was hiding this from everyone indicates he knows it's a thing to be hidden. And in her her video, Kelly Sue talks about like, you know, we're not talking about he was good to me as a way of dismissing. She believes all of these women and has been talking to them and also working with them to try to look at... You know she's advanced in her mm-hmm. career, um, and she has position and clout and power in the sci-fi fantasy comics world. What can we do in the culture of these communities to prevent this from happening as much as possible? Um, and she does talk about. You know and and I think it 's true sadly, like anytime you have people in power, some of them will find ways to take advantage of their power, but there are also things that folks can do in their communities to um, to try to protect each other and to try to minimize the potential for that harm and i I think that it's this is an interesting like evolution yeah. of a me too movement uh, of a me too moment. To see it go beyond like Warren Ellis, his reputation, I think is like, th- it should be done. Like if this kind of information doesn't do it, I'm not sure what does. But that that's not the end goal. The end goal is right. not this one person, but let's look at the systems that allowed this. To happen um, and try to change that. So there's a lot of information. Um, if you have been a fan of Warren Ellis and you want to really find out about what's been going on, we are sorry
1: yeah. um,
2: to be the bearers of this bad news, but we'll have the link in the show notes for you if you want to
1: dive in. To use it to use a metaphor, I think one thing the, implicit in the we don't want to cancel Warren Ellis but have a conversation is not to say to readers, we don't think you should stop buying his books if you don't want to. It's like the goal here... Just canceling Warren Ellis is not doing the thing, right? That's just sort right. of like whack a mole with nasty dudes, mm-hmm. right? We want to yeah. get the whack a mole machine out of the arcade, so to speak. Like, how do we <laughs> how do we pull the wires out so that we're not keeping to whack these moles? And I was thinking about this. There's a there's a line that stuck with me from Finding Forrester. This is going to be so weird. Do you remember this <laughs> movie with Sean Connery kind of befriends this like young a
0: million years this ago, young black
1: yeah. kid, student? Mm-hmm. I can't remember if he's in high school or college. Who wants to be a writer? And Sean Connery is supposed mm-hmm. to be like this sort of. J.D. Salinger, reclusive, wherever, and there's this exchange they have, where the where the the mentee says, "So if if you write a good book, women will want to sleep with you," and Sean Connery says, "If you write a bad book, a woman will sleep with you," and it got me thinking. This that stuck in my head. It stuck in my head since I saw because I was like, they just said that out loud in the movie. Mm-hmm, like I remember, right? Mm-hmm. I was like 16. I, whenever this movie came out, I was in my early 20s at the latest. And to make this, the the text explicit. And I think I've said this in previous shows when we were talking about Me Too and in, in Men in Power, is for a lot of men in power, this is having sexual dominion over women is not a byproduct or an unexpected perk of the gig. It is the purpose and point of accumulating influence for some men. Yeah. And at what point does consenting relationship with multiple people turn into toxic behavior that hurts the community. I think that's at the core of the question and conversation these women are wanting to ask. Can you have... Could someone like Warren Ellis have relationships with a bunch of people? What does that look like for us to be be okay with it? Should this not be something... Should this idea that it comes along with the gig to have access to women who are willing to sleep with you or do whatever because you're famous... Is that something we want? How do, how do we interrogate that? And I don't have any answers about any of that. I'm, I'm far from it. But it does make me think of like that conversation was in a popular mainstream movie about writers. Mm-hmm. And explicitly part of it was getting to have sex with people who you wouldn't otherwise have access to. And how much of that is the root of the root? Like if, if you don't root that idea out, you might just be playing whack-a-mole forever. And I, I don't know how to deal with that essentially. But it made me think of it again.
2: Yeah. though I think there's a several really good and important questions in that and the notion that like you know i think one of the core problems is that these women are saying if we had if we had known he was having 18 other relationships i wouldn't have consented to this and it wasn't actual consent i gave because i didn't know all of these things and like you know i don't think there's a story here like if the story was Warren Ellis had 19 girlfriends and all of them knew about each other and consented, like then you're just gossiping.
1: Yeah. Right. (laughs) I guess, I guess that's right. It's the, it's the subterfuge. It's the asking. I mean, there's details about asking women to lie, right. You know, anytime Mm -hmm. I guess when you cannot be forthright um, or you're asking other people to not be forthright, maybe that's a bright line in a world with not a lot of bright lines. Maybe that's a usable one. Um, Am I withholding information that this person would need to know to fully consent? Not just in this particular act, but this particular relationship at large. Like, would it change the vector of consent if they knew something they don't know about how I'm carrying on with other people? That's that's pretty straightforward. I think that is
2: a. I think that is a bright line. That like to for consent to be real. Yeah the person who's giving the consent has to have all of the information to be mm-hmm. consenting to the the full situation. Yeah. So whether it's information about your health or your other partners or you know some critical thing that might change the shape of it, certainly having 18 other relationships at the same time is information that might influence someone's willingness to engage with you. Yeah. And he had to be aware of that because he chose to keep it a secret and that like, if you are hiding something that might change the person's decision, you're absolutely not giving them the opportunity to consent. And like, I'm it's 2020 we're progressive people on this show. Like I don't really care what two people who are actually consenting do or how many relationships they have at the same time. And I don't think that's a news story. Like the news here is that he was doing this to such a degree and that it was not consensual.
1: Yeah, right, right. Um, There's a world in which a group of women who have a relationship with someone don't get together and form a website and call it so many of us, right? I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's a world in which that doesn't happen because people, you know, rocks, I'm trying to think of some equivalent, rock stars or something else like that. I don't know.
2: It feels different from like... uh, I don't even know if like groupie culture is a thing for rock stars anymore, but I assume that it is like if if you Mm -hmm. went back to like the 60s or 70s model of things like groupies all kind of knew each other Mm -hmm. (laughs) or were aware that like they were a groupie and there were other groupies and that was the culture they were participating in. And these women were not entering into that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We uh, talk about uh, now we're really, I I went from being (laughs) pretty uncomfortable to wildly uncomfortable. (laughs) So that means it's time for a sponsor break.
0: So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in '95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. today's episode is brought to you by w.w. norton and company incorporated so negative space by Gillian linden follows a week in the life of an english teacher at a new york private school at home her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between zoom calls At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student, but how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic focused. And it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode
1: in uh, good news things uh, not much to say about this except that it exists and you can do it the book it program um if there is something in the world of books and reading with a higher q rating than the book <laughs> it program among people of a certain age i don't know what it is this is where pizza hut basically makes a reading summer reading program where you your kids you and your kids or you know kids in your life um, or kids that can do it on their own self report reading they do it enough they get a personal pan pizza on the hut itself um, I remember doing this. You remember doing this. Mm-hmm. You can go check it out. We'll put a link in our show notes. Uh, would love to see I'd love to get um, a whole bunch of kids that are reading this summer a little extra pizza for it. I'm gonna sign my kids up later today. When I told them about it, they were through the roof, excited, even though we have pizza, you know, but th- that we they could get their own little one and they can earn it. like it's a thing like that, that's a thing. And um, you and I off the air were wondering, does this inspire one additional page of reading than <laughs> if there were no pizza? Some questions are better left unanswered and uninterrogated. I don't care <laughs> if it does or not.
2: I don't care either. This
1: this exists. Um, did you you did book it when you were a kid, right?
2: Oh, I for sure did. Yeah, right. And I don't think it inspired additional reading in me, but I was already going to read to mm-hmm. fill out like everything I needed to fill out that form. I was just more like d- double and triple and probably quadruple dipping in summer reading rewards program
1: yeah you're like an extreme <laughs> couponer of kids reading programs
2: <laughs>
1: yes yeah. uh, moving on to good news uh, the long the long long by us awaited speculated upon Michelle Obama podcast is starting soonish I, I've not I looked at the link uh, long July enough. July 29 so coming up yeah. quick here um, mm-hmm. we're within t minus nine days to this launching it's going to be I think in the sh- the description says, Made for Rebecca Shinsky. <laughs> I, that's Is that what the description you got out of this uh, press yes, release was about? Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: basically the thing I yearned for when we talked about what we thought their podcasts might be. It's a show about what's possible when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to open up, and to focus on what matters most. <laughs> Well, Michelle's been reading my journals. Jeff. Yeah, she
1: she has. They, they got a drone. While, <laughs> while Obama was in power, the NSA was going to work on what does Shinsky want? Let's let's take a look at her dream journal mm-hmm. for a podcast and see. <laughs> See what she has here. the 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 lineup. There's some names I don't know. Some we do. We, weirdly, one of the the announced launch week guests is Conan O'Brien, which I think about vulnerability and like opening up to the possibilities of being an authentic human. I, I think Conan O'Brien is the bottom quartile of my <laughs> picks for that. He seems like an interest. He's certainly an interesting, funny, and smart guy. But like, anyway. So that'll be fascinating to see. I, I guess it's not the. If it was like Glennon Doyle and Brene Brown and Oprah, I mean, that's maybe what I would have expected for the launch mm-hmm. kind of titles, which I'm sure the you know, Ob- Michelle's the one who says no in these bookings. It's right. not anybody else. So I'm assuming that there's some intentionality about this and I, I don't really know. But I thought it was interesting that it wasn't just like it's Barack, Oprah and uh, Brene Brown in the first week or something yeah, like that. Because sure. it could have been, right? And we kind right. of would have seen and, that. Like,
2: her mom and her brother are going to be on the yeah. show. That'll be great. Valerie Jarrett, the longtime advisor to both Obamas, mm-hmm. um, will be on the show. Yeah, a few names that we don't know. And Conan. And I do think you know, like. there's a lot of vulnerability implicit in comedy and doing the kind of That's work fair. that – Conan O'Brien does it'll be interesting I'm assuming they have some they must have like a, a relatively close relationship she said in a different interview or maybe it was in like the teaser you know two minute teaser on Spotify for the podcast that these are conversations with folks that she's close to and feels comfortable with and that we're starting off with like friends and family basically yeah. um, so I hope that she'll provide some context because that is the most surprising one here like yeah parents Valerie Jarrett Michelle Nors, <laughs> Conan, cool, O'Brien. Cool. Conan O'Brien
1: Like, well I have to say my 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 the esteem in which I hold Conan O'Brien went up meaningfully when i saw <laughs> yeah. the name just just you know um uh, innocent by association i guess to mm-hmm. some degree. like i've watched conan i wouldn't call myself a conan fan but i think he's fine in the 90s it was a big deal like he, he was the counter to the letterman leno duopoly mm-hmm. of late night so that was always interesting like explicitly positioned yourself as a nerd um but I'm fascinated to see how this is going to go. And one of the things you were really looking for was, and, and the we get the adjective here, of candid. So it's not mm-hmm. going to be scripted necessarily. You know, I have, my, I have my doubts about whether Michelle or Barack Obama can actually ever be candid in public in a way that we would understand candid. Like, how candid is candid? They're so good at being um, spontaneously polished, I guess is one way of putting it. Mm. It'll be interesting to hear how... Even just the production is like, it, does it feel like it's edited at all? What what is it going to sound like? I'm really fascinated to see.
2: Yeah, I think that we've, we're seeing Michelle Obama on a really interesting trajectory, where you know, through their public life, and she talks about this a lot in the book, um, she became more and more contained because the risk that was inherent in being candid or just being herself was that the media were going to talk about it they were going to be sometimes often cruel and hurtful the kids might be impacted it just wasn't worth it just the cost Mm -hmm. benefit was not worth being fully candid and that as they as she and barack left the white house and sort of getting to shed those layers of containing herself and she was a little more candid in the book and a little more candid than that on the tour and in the becoming documentary, which follows her going on her book tour, I think she was even more candid and was talking about like this gradual, you know, loosening up and getting to be herself. And yeah, I don't think that when you're that famous and you're the first and only Black first couple. Um, that society allows you to be like to be candid in the way that like we get to be candid on our podcast when we're sitting in our home offices in our pajamas stakes (laughs) stakes
1: and expectations are completely different and i'm not saying (laughs) they're wrong to be that way i think they're the smartest people maybe that have ever existed around public relations yes um so
2: just complete it's a completely different scale um but it'll be interesting to hear i think what the next step of more candid looks like
1: well it is true though that at some point you know you, you accumulate enough cultural capital by being buttoned up, for lack of a better term, and polished. Mm-hmm. You can you know at what point, if ever, do you choose to spend some of that? Right, you know, at what point do you ch- choose to dip into the good feelings to do something that maybe breaks out of what people might expect mm-hmm. or feel comfortable coming out of your mouth, or you know, people sitting alongside of you, the kind of ideas you consider propagate and advocate for. Um, but you know, fascinating to see here. I'm sure we'll see um, Barack himself from time to time. I think I you, you so. were talking about how he would show up from time to time on the tour. Not always mm-hmm. like very sort of strategic guest stars, right? You don't want yeah. to use, you don't want to use them all the time. Right. But just enough, just enough. To, to keep yeah,
2: it I'm sure he'll appear. It'll be, I think, interesting over time to see how far out these seem to be recorded or if they have some flexibility to do things that respond to whatever's happening in culture mm-hmm. at the time and be a little more, off the cuff. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm just excited to see I think that it's a, a
1: moment, moment a lot of people are ready. I mean, frankly, yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. a good moment for o- Michelle Obama to, to, to calm us down and help us out and give us strength. Um,
2: frankly, if it's just an hour of her being like, just everyone calm down, just, that would
1: be yeah. great. Yeah. Like well, so, some of those meditation mantras, but just Michelle <laughs> Obama. Uh, last, just calm down. The last story. I don't want to undersell the story. I mean, oversell the story, but I think this one is largely about Rebecca and I. <laughs> Being the avatars <laughs> of literary history, I think that's Just, what the, the real—that's the upshot of this particular story. Is.
2: In today's breaking news, we were right about it.
1: Yeah, right. So Colson Whitehead um, becomes the youngest ever winner of the Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction. It's a lifetime achievement award. Um, past winners are giants in, mm-hmm. um, you know, contemporary—you know, contemporary versus modern, blah blah blah. It's kind of a thing. But really, since the award was starting given out about twelve years ago. You see your Tony Morrisons, your Eardricks, your Marilyn Robinsons, and now Colson Whitehead. Um, which now Marilyn Robinson is still alive, so you can't say based on this, he's the greatest American living novelist as as we contend that he is, though I think that he is. Mm-hmm. But at the very least he's sort of the, the youngest great, right, uh, of you know, some of the people on this list are, are living and some of them aren't. Um, you know, I, I wonder about winning a Lifetime Achievement Award. Is, is he 50 even? I can't remember Yeah, exactly. he's 50. Just at 50. I hope there's a lot of Lifetime Achieving still to go for Christian <laughs> Whitehead. We heard that a new book is coming out next fall. Is that what we heard?
2: Yes. Yeah. The fall of 2021, his uh, Twitter account announced it. It's called The Harlem Shuffle.
1: Yeah. Looking forward to that. Um, probably the only uh, winner of this award to be photographed wearing a leather motorcycle jacket. Uh, very... <laughs> Uh, on a leaning on a white box you know so it's very interesting um one tony morrison won the award in 2011 i don't know how she was the fourth winner like they're like herman woke <laughs> and john grisham before tony morrison i don't know what to say about that
2: john grisham before tony morrison is a sentence that should not that, that's a
1: that's a tough look for us uh, as someone who now thinks that you know anyway i'm not of, i think we're right now and they were wrong then let's put it that way that's always a helpful yes. way to say um so carla hayden uh, who's the librarian of Congress? Selected Whitehead as this year's winner based on nominations from more than sixty distinguished literary figures. I'd like to see that whole sixty. Mm-hmm. I think I might have a hard time coming up with sixty to put on this list myself. I don't. I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're being oh, exhaustive, it's, but
2: it's nominations from sixty figures, oh, not nominations of oh,
1: sixty figures.
2: So yeah. I would assume there's some overlap in who those sixty. Boy, I, I would think so
1: too. Um, on Thursday, July sixteenth, which has already happened. Whitehead will join Hayden in conversation on race in America, part of a video series called Hear You, Hear Me. The conversation will be available, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So the link that we'll put in the show notes has a link to that conversation, which maybe is on YouTube now, which I didn't think about. Um, Seven novels for for Whitehead. A couple of nonfiction books, um, The Noble Hustle and The Colossus of New York. Uh, Yeah, just just, there's nothing else to, to say about it.
2: Yeah, he's not the youngest working American writer. And I think you're right that there's a lot of lifetime achieving left for him to do. Like He could stop writing and already have achieved real greatness. And I think that this award looks at that and the books that he has published... Certainly prove that to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, like this could, th- like if this is all Colson Whitehead ever does, like he has done a lot. Yeah, like
1: back <laughs> to back Pulitzer you know? prizes, National right. Book Award, MacArthur yeah. Foundation and, Genius and, Award, Time Magazine named him America's right. Storyteller last year. I, he's got some hardware. Like, the mantle is he full. He could for be Colson done, Whitehead right?
2: Here. Like if he decided to retire, I don't think anybody could argue with like, oh, but there's more for you to achieve. Like I think that he has the potential to write a lot more really amazing things and to continue pushing the. Literary envelope, yeah. and I certainly hope that he will. I think the most interesting thing is that there are older novelists mm-hmm. who have been doing this for longer, who maybe have bigger backlists or have uh, titles that are like modern classics. That he was chosen over them, um, and that's significant in the place that his books occupy in what the world is doing right now. And I think the it's a real vote of confidence in. Not just our rightness, um, but mm-hmm. the the longevity, and um, the, I think the longevity of how his books will continue to apply um, and be relevant to readers, and say something about not just you know the world in the 2010s and 2020s, um, but the historical context mm-hmm. of the United States that he writes about.
1: It, you know, there, you could think of this as, I mean, it doesn't have the money that comes along with it, but in terms of structure, shape, and intent, it's like the American Nobel, this award, which we haven't paid yeah. much attention to over time for, you know, there's a lot of different awards, and frankly, the last couple, Annie Prue and Richard Ford, who I both like as the awardees... I'm not super excited by like I'm not st- I'm not I'm not anxiously breathlessly awaiting books by those authors. Um, maybe Dennis Johnson the 2017 award, certainly Maren Robinson the 2016 winner, mm-hmm. Louis Erdrich before that, Dr. O, Delillo, Philip Roth, Toni Morrison, Isabel Allende and John Grisham and then Herman Wouk was the initial winner in 2018. But I think we this is one we're going to cover and maybe we can devote a future episode about yeah. the 2021 winner. If we if we were Carla Hayden I mean, mm. could only be so lucky. But um, you know, who would be on our shortlist to consider for this? Uh, I think would be interesting. Library of Congress Creative Achievement Award for Fiction. Uh, so that's you know yeah, important that's... too. We're not looking at I don't nonfiction writers or poets or playwrights or anything else. Right? Like this. Yeah. Um, and there's.
2: I mean, there are a lot of ways to have a successful and impactful fiction writing career that aren't being Colson Whitehead. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, just because you didn't make it onto Mount Rushmore didn't mean you didn't do good work. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Interesting to think about who those might be.
1: Yeah, it's tougher. Um, It was pretty clear to us when we talked about it that Colson Whitehead would be our pick for, you know, wearing the crown of the greatest Mm -hmm. living American fiction writer. I think who's the Dauphin maybe is harder, right, Um, so to speak. Uh, Anyway, Rebecca, that's our show. As always, you can find... Links to all the stories we talked about um, at bookriot.com. Listen, you can shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. If you got feedback, questions, or comments for us, programming note, um, the midweek episodes are coming back in late August. We're going to kick off with a review of our favorite reading from the summer. We'll do a fall preview and then some other stuff coming up as well. So, um, you know, make sure you make time in your podcast life for a little more Jeff and Rebecca coming at you. Uh, Rebecca, thank you as always, and we'll talk to you next week.
2: Yeah, have a good one.